Yeah, well, you know that one, don't you? That is the Beatles. And how about this fun fact for April 13? In 1962, 51 years ago today, the Beatles began their legendary stint at the uh, new Star Club in Hamburg in Germany. They performed three to four hours every night for 48 nights with only one night off. <laughs> Whilst they were in Hamburg, they had a call to tell them they'd be signed by EMI and Paul McCartney wrote that song, P.S. I Love You, when he knew he had a record deal and wanted something new for the album. So there you go, people. <laughs> that must be one of the best gigs of all time, Alan. Oh, oh yeah. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Oh, my goodness. But, yeah. um, and, and four years later, they were doing Tomorrow Never Knows. God, so, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. The, their like will never come again. Oh, look nah. at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. nah. <laughs> it's stood the test of time, that song, hasn't it, Heather? Yeah, it has. Wasn't that a punishing schedule, though? Yeah. I know. They I knew. don't think we'd see that today. No, no, you see, baby, you're trying to say the baby boomers are harder workers. Heather, is that you... <laughs> oh, I think you're putting words in my mouth, John. I, I just love like a good intergenerational battle. Well, yeah. no, nobody has to play an instrument anymore today, it's all computers, yeah. you know. Well, so, they always said yeah. they were off, off key and out of tune half the time, but the screaming yes. of all the, uh, of the fans <laughs> just drowned them out. Um, look, are we getting more feedback about the pickles? Um, and sorry, about the sandwiches, including one from Olaf saying peanut butter and pickle is a goodie. Um, and another one from Kate in Fangnare, who said um, that her partner has calculated that his enormous salad sandwich, um, if he'd, all the ones he's had, if he stacked them on top of each other, they'd be taller than the Sky Tower. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. <laughs> that is a lot of sandwiches. That is a lot of sandwiches, i got to say. All right. <clears throat> um, so now. Going by the sobering numbers in the next story, many of you listening will be able to relate. Uh, a new report by the World Health Organization says roughly one in six people worldwide experience infertility. One in six infertility. That's men and women. And in this case, infertility is defined as being unable to get pregnant after a year of unprotected sex. Dr. Pascal Alote from the World Health Organization says it's a staggering number and says treatment of infertility is underfunded and inaccessible to too many. So we thought we'd talk to Dr Andrew Murray, the Group Medical Director at Fertility Associates, who's with us. Dr Murray, good afternoon. Yeah, kia ora, everyone. Nice to be here. Kia ora. You're most welcome. Um, is this staggering to you? Are you surprised that one in six people experience infertility? No, I'm not staggered at all. Um, that's a number that's been around for quite some time. I mean, when I trained as a medical student in the early 90s, we used to say it was 1 in 10, but it's been steadily increasing. I, I think the thing Why? That, uh, well, I think it's, it's due to a couple of main drivers. Firstly, um, there's been a general... The main one would be women are 
having their kids later mm. in life. And as women get older, their fertility declines. And that's certainly been the case in the developed world. And there's a big part of the world that um, is sort of transitioning from developing to developed world. And so as a result, there's more education of women, women participating in the workforce longer. And so in countries that were previously um, experiencing lower infertility rates, one of the byproducts of those very worthwhile things is a higher rate of infertility in those countries. Mm. It, it's interesting. The, unlike most diseases, this study shows that there's hardly any gap between rich and poor countries. Yeah, yeah, what? that's right. I mean, I think the thing about infertility that it, it's it's a medical diagnosis. It's not a lifestyle choice. And so uh, as a result, it, it, it doesn't discriminate on socioeconomic status, just like any other medical condition. Is there the same kind of stigma? The World Health Organization talked about how this is, you know, a, a punishing disease for so many people, partly because yeah. of the stigma attached with it. Has that changed, though? Oh, I do think there is still some stigma. It's improving. Uh, I think that we... I know from the interactions I have with the media, this is a, a you know quite a popular topic, and I'm quite often asked to comment <laughs> about it. And so we're we're often talking about infertility in in our world, but there's no doubt in my mind. If I look at certain um, groups, even within New Zealand, um, in in our Maori population, there's certainly a sense of whakamā and shame mm. around perhaps mm. coming forward. And I know that um, our, our Maori women uh, and, and men are, are sometimes struggling to come forward to seek help. We see similar things in the Pacifica population, but it's not just limited to to those groups um, across the board. It wouldn't be a, an infrequent thing for me to say to a couple that's sitting in my office to say, gosh, you know, wh- I really wish you'd come and see me years ago, not just months ago. Um, there'd be people that have um, really? put a sort so, Oh, for sure. Um, mm. You know, so we generally suggest people, the earlier the better. If someone's okay. struggling, you know, if, it, if it's a year that they've been trying and no luck, they should be seeking help. They really should be. Okay. Um, the The report talks about it as a disease that, like, um, uh, that is inaccessible and un- underfunded, and says this is a you know something that needs to be dealt with by by money. Why is it so as expensive? Why is it expensive if it is? And would more public money be a big changer for you? Well, let's start with yeah. Of course, I mean I think if you talk to any clinician. They're always going to want more more public funding. I mean, no matter what specialty they they are in. But sure. if we if if we answer the first part of your question there, why why is treatment so expensive? I mean, often the the most effective tool for many of the conditions that we come across ends up being IVF. It is one of the most significant game changers to treat infertility. You know, in the past forty years. Um, if we break down what they actually cost, you know, IVF drugs are expensive. The team of people involved, not just the doctors, but the nurses, the scientists, the counsellors, they're all people that are highly trained and, and need to be paid. But in so terms of the, the medicines, the, they yes. often become cheaper over time, whether it's through, you know, um, generic things or, I mean, technology generally tends to get cheaper over time. Why doesn't, wouldn't this treatment get cheaper as the years go by? Oh, the relative cost has gotten cheaper, oh, it? but it's okay. still expensive relative to other things. So just in the same way, when you buy a, um, a computer now, it's so much cheaper than it yeah, used exactly. to be, but it's still not 
a cheap you know consumer item <coughs> still cost of you know several thousand dollars. So the same sort of things uh, are still in place with uh, fertility treatment. And unfortunately, if someone isn't eligible for publicly funded treatment, for many. It, it is inaccessible um, in, the, in the private sector. With regards to publicly funded treatment, New Zealand is certainly uh, not as generous as other jurisdictions. Um, we currently fund IVF for couples who um, are under 40 who meet certain criteria such as being under a certain BMI non-smoking. If we look across mm -hmm. the Tasman to Australia, there's no such restrictions. They have essentially unlimited um, access to publicly funded IVF there. Oh, really, even 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 if you're a smoker or over the certain BMI, there's no restrictions there. No. Interesting. Um, Can I bring the panel yeah. on that? What do you guys bring think them about? in? Yeah, yeah. Um, Alan, what do you think about how <clears> this could be funded or how it could be made more? accessible to people. Yeah, well, uh, I was interested in something you had to say, Andrew, that you said that, you know, when you were going through med school, it was sort of like um, one in ten, and now it's one in six. Mm. Um, so reading, <clears throat> excuse me, the story, um, the data come from 1990 to um, 2022, and sort of said that it wasn't clear if it was increasing or not, and I think it would be very, very interesting. You know, are, are, there, are there data from, say, the 60s or whatever, which would confirm that this is an increasing problem? I, I suspect that it's more um, a publication bias where people probably always have experienced infertility, but we just now find out about it more mm. readily. Whereas if we go back to the 60s, there was probably Auntie Myrtle and Uncle Fred who just never had kids and no one <laughs> ever really talked about it. Yeah. You know, it was just a thing that mm. they, oh, they never had kids, and, and it was, it was yeah. a real taboo subject. So I think it's more publication bias as opposed to there being an epidemic of um, f uh, you know, fertility problems per se. I mean, we do know things like sperm counts are declining yes, from yeah, over yeah. the last century, but they're not declining to a point where the, that's clinically relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think as a species we're becoming less fertile or um, because of you know lifestyle changes and things. I, I think it's always been there, but we're just discovering it more readily. Okay, okay. Mm. Um, Heather? Um, yeah, I've got a question for Andrew, really. Um, I wasn't surprised to hear you're thinking that you know people are waiting longer uh, to, to get pregnant. Um, women aren't... Uh, as commonly having babies in their 20s uh, as they were once upon a time. Is there a sort of a, a magic age by which you should be seeking to um, to have children if you want to? And I had a conversation with someone recently who had a family member who is a nurse in fertility and she encourages her family members, um, her female family members, if they, haven't, if they want to have children but haven't by the time they're 30, to consider harvesting eggs and freezing them. Is that a good idea? So to your first question there, um, Heather, I, I mean, I don't think anyone can be told you should have kids by mm. X number of age. I mean, that's a very individualised thing. And there's, you know, it, I suppose it's all about choices and there's an opportunity cost for trap doing those wonderful things that might mean you're deferring having kids, um, you mm. know, travelling, um, trying to, to, to progress your career. Um, let's face it, with the cost of living at the moment, to even afford to buy a house at the moment is becoming increasingly more challenging. And those are all really valid reasons why it might just not be possible. But to come back to your other 
point around egg freezing. I mean, it's fantastic we've got that as a tool at our disposal. Um, today, I've met three single women, all in their early 30s. I'd meet probably two to three per day in my consulting rooms who are facing exactly this dilemma. Some of them even have, I mean, one of the women I met this afternoon came with her partner and she's just not in a situation where having children right now is actually the right time for them as a couple but egg freezing is something they're giving some serious thought to. Mm. Again though there's costs attached to that. I think at a minimum there's a relatively inexpensive test that can be done that I think should be available to all women across the country. It's something called an AMH test. It's a blood test that tells women precisely where they are at with their egg reserves for reasons that aren't clear to me, it's free in the South Island, but it costs you money in the North Island. I've actually written to really? Dr. Verrill. Yeah, That's bizarre. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've actually written to Dr. Verrill um, about a month or two back just saying, oh, look, can we just sort this out and just, you know, have it? How, how much does it cost? cost? How much does it cost uh, in the North Island? It costs to the patient $80. I don't know what it costs the government. No. But, um, uh, you know, it's in the. But free if you're, so if you're in Nelson, it's zero, and if you're in. Um, Tauranga, it's 80 bucks. Yep. Gosh. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, when we talk about a postcode lottery with our health system, yeah, it's exactly. a pretty stark <laughs> example of that one. Yeah. So if we could just get that sorted out and make that available <laughs> to, you know, to, to women who, when they're going to have their smear tests in their, mm. in their mid-20s, let's just add on an AMH test as part of their reproductive health um, checkup. I think that would actually help many women... Uh, it will give them the power to make some choices around when they might choose to start their family. And I'd add to that, I think something we often say is it's not actually your first baby you should be thinking about, it's your last one. Because it's all very well to think about when you might have the first baby, but if you're waiting till your mid-30s to, to achieve that, but your total planned family size might be two or three children, there's a less than 50% chance you'll pull that off if you start at, th- at age 35. Mm. There's, there's a question that anybody might want to weigh in on, on this one. A couple of listeners and it, it, um, have mentioned, and it came up in some of the reports I saw on this World Health Organization report, is that it's in the context of a world that is overpopulated, right? Grant has said infertility is a good thing in a vastly overpopulated world. Karen says, why should we help people have more children when the world is already overpopulated? How do you wrestle with that, Andrew? Well, I mean, you could apply the same logic to saying why should we treat cancer patients or road car victims? You know, let's just let them. You know, t- I mean, as I said before, infertility isn't a lifestyle choice; it's a medical diagnosis. And so, whilst for sure there is um, a problem of, of an overpopulated world in some parts of the world, that's certainly not the case in all parts of the world. And we. we we still need to replace our population to, to, to keep the world moving. So I think that's a rather naive and somewhat cruel view where the, 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 the men and women who want to start those families, um, you know, they, they very much would make fantastic parents. And to say to them, well, the world's overpopulated, you know, what are you thinking? Um, they, they don't have the luxury of that choice. It's a choice that's being forced on them. So, yeah, I don't think that's a particularly helpful view. Interesting. All right, um, Dr. Andrew Murray from Fertility Associates, thank you very much for your time today. Really interesting hey. conversation. Thanks for your time too. No, yes. pleasure. Bye. Um, any last comments on that, my fine panel? <laughs>
<laughs> um, he he makes an awful lot of sense with this um, test. I think mm. that that, yeah. that sounds extraordinarily. Sensible, I think we'll throw I'd that say. one to the newsroom to follow up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that's really interesting. Yep. Um, talking about. An interesting news. Um, story we saw in um, Stuff Today. Christopher Luxon was down on the farm Tuesday chatting to about 50 or so true blue Waikato farmers. But maybe he got a little bit too relaxed. <laughs> Stuff's reporting that when asked if he could win the election by working with Te Pate Māori, he said, uh, quote, the short answer is no, unquote. He said the Māori party is not the same party that worked with John Key and it now believes in two separate systems, something the National cannot support. Less surprisingly, he also ruled out working with the Greens. Uh, interestingly, his spin doctors very, very quickly, um, shall we say, cleaning out the cow shed and um, <laughs> insisting he didn't mean to rule out coalition agreements with either. But with Te Pāti Māori coming out as kingmaker in more than one poll this year, um, it's potentially a big, big call from Luxon, isn't it, Heather? Um, yes, I mean, in politics, you never, ever say um, a categorical no. You always leave your options open, but not the least bit surprised that he thinks that. And look, one one of the things about Chris Luxon is he um, he does sort of, you know, when he's asked on the hop, he will tell you what he's really thinking. And <laughs> to a certain extent, that's quite refreshing, I think. But um, I, I think that the party to watch this election actually is top. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how, how they do. Yeah, um, I think that um, they've got some traction that they haven't had in past elections. If you look at their list, it's worth going to um, their website and looking at their list. It's uh, really quite impressive in terms of breadth of diversity and um, and ability. And their problem is going to be reaching the 5% threshold or winning um, an, a, an electorate seat. Well, they're talking about the chances in Elam, but they aren't they? Are. They are, yes. With Jerry Brownlee stepping aside there, I think they do yeah. have a bit of a chance. And even Martin Bradbury in his blog today said, I think he sees top maybe as the saviour of the left. Um, <laughs> but I Martin think actually they, I would position them in the centre but towards the liberal end of the spectrum. Um, okay. I, I don't think in terms of left and right. But I do think that they're going to be very interesting to watch this election. All right, let's bring in uh, Scott Campbell, uh, who is a former gallery reporter. He's now managing director of Campbell Squared Communications that specialises in working with Māori organisations. And he's also the co-host of the sensationally good politics podcast, Caucus. Um, Kia ora, Scott. Kia ora, good afternoon. G'day, mate, how are you? Good. Good, good, good. Um, Scott, what do you think of this comment from Lux in a slip of the tongue? Does it tell us something he didn't really mean to say, or do you think he's trying to say something. No, I agree with Heather. Um, one of the things about Christopher Luxon is that um, when he is put on the spot, he will answer honestly. Um, and sometimes maybe he's too honest. Uh, and as a politician, that can get you into trouble sometimes. So I think when you start to get your back office come out really quickly uh, and clarify your <laughs> comments, um, yes. that tells you something. Uh, but yeah, he was, he, was on, he was down on the farm. He was talking to his people. Um, and the reality is he can't speak strongly about a potential relationship with the party Māori at the same time as he is criticising co-governance or co-management or anything along those lines. But Can, is, can he not? Is, is there no line to walk there where you can find common cause somewhere else and still well, disagree possibly on Well, possibly a bit, bit closer to the election or after the election, um, but this far <laughs> out it will look a bit hypocritical on one hand at the, at the top of a bulletin to be criticising, on the other hand saying, oh, we can work with a, with a party that is um, has a Māori focus. Uh, I, I think in some ways they're ruling it out this far out from an election, as Heather's already commented on, is a, is a silly thing to do and no, not surprising that they um, double back pretty quickly.
What would it take for National and Te Pāti Māori to come to some kind of arrangement? Do you well, see it? Is benches. it all possible? Cross, yeah, cross benches. Yeah. The, the benches. Um, mm. when, it's, when, when you've got a, a party that's been sitting in opposition for a long time and it's that close, um, negotiations will happen, uh, and they do happen. And to party Māori, it might be beneficial for them also that he said this, because they will have some of their people who will say, who will be emboldened by this. Um, and so it's probably not a bad thing for them. But um, to party Māori, I think if you go back to the 08 um, coalition or the agreements and confidence and supplies, he's right, it was quite a different setup. However, let's not forget that Huni Harawera was a part of that Māori party right. back then as well too. So there were some controversial comments and, uh, and relationships at that point. It's amazing how you can find ways to work together when it suits you. Ellen, um, <laughs> <coughs> just bring you in here. Um, Te Pāti Māori have been careful not to pick sides themselves. They've been on record saying we haven't made a choice, mm-hmm. we're not saying who we're going for. I mean, how do mm-hmm. you see this? Well, I think the one name that everybody is missing here, dare I say it, is Winston. Um, No, 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 hear hear me out Come on then Well, no, well, um, I think Heather, you said that, you know, ruling people out this far ahead And you can never, ever rule Winston out Never, ever I think think you can, because John Key did it in 2011, I believe, didn't he? He ruled out working he with New once. Zealand first. I can't remember and which election. I, th- I think it was 2011, mm. but, but it worked for him. Yep. Um, yeah. But I, I dare I say it, I, you know, you just hear these rumblings about Winston and you think, oh, shit, here we go again. Mm. Um, mm. And I think, I, I, I don't know about Top, but I think that Winston's going to be the one to watch here. Um, he's going to struggle to get an electorate seat, obviously. Um, has, has ACT, and Heather, you might have a view on this, has ACT taken some of New Zealand First's airspace? Uh, I think a little, yes, um, but not. Not. I think that uh, I've, seen Winston, I've seen Winston win all of that back again, and you know when when there's been threats from other places. So sometimes um, Peter Dunn took a bit of his airspace. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, it, it's sort of all over the place. And look, Winston doesn't operate from principles; he operates from <laughs> picking three things, <laughs> and he'll pick things that will he knows will resonate with his audience, and is very good at attracting them back that way. And that's why you can never rule him out. Mm. So, where do you see this going, Scott? I'm I'm, I'm the same. I think Winston, watch Winston, watch Shane Jones. Shane Mm. um, Jones wrote a piece in in one of the publications recently which almost sounded like a leadership speech. Uh, (laughs) Really? Yeah, and I think there's a process type, right? Somewhere out there at the moment is we're we're all probably a bit tired over the last three years of being told what to do and and when to wash our hands and those sorts of things. And it might be finally going to come back to hit at this election. I have this funny feeling that we are heading towards almost the 2005 type of election where, you know, Don Brash almost got there. Mm. Um, and and I, we've got a sort of similar um, situation, I suspect, playing out a bit at the moment where we don't know Christopher Luxon very much and we do know the Labour Party, so which way do you really want to go and who's on the, who's on the fringes? <laughs> Heather? Mm, no, I, I agree with um, with what Scott's saying, and I think that the Maori Party have ruled one party out, and that's ACT. They've said they won't r- r- work with yeah, ACT, and true. so that, by implication, uh, means they are most unlikely to work with National too. And I don't think they would. Well, not this Maori Party. I absolutely agree with their comments about the Maori Party of two thousand and eight, uh, with Peter Sharples and Tare Anaturia is quite a quite different party than mm. to Party Maori now. Okay, thank you. Scotty Campbell, thank you very much for your time. Kia ora.
Kia ora. Um, all right. In the time we've got left, I just want to come back to sandwiches. Um, Alan, do you have a sandwich story? Um, okay, New Zealand, this is, this is the best sandwich you can have, peanut butter and golden syrup. Good Lord. Ooh. It is the best Big call. Thing. The really? Best. Oh, yeah, it's delicious. Okay. Yep. He- yep. Heather, do you have anything to add to that madness? Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not a peanut butter fan. I love peanuts, but not peanut butter. Uh, my favourite sandwich or burger, if I can extend things slightly, is yeah, the, right. from the food truck in Havelock and Marlborough. Their best burger is uh, the meat patty, which is homemade, bacon, banana, and blue cheese, which sounds terrible. <laughs> no, no, but that sounds good. It's really, really good. Ooh. And they serve it with salad. There's a marmalade and bacon fan who's. who's, um, who's Done in, so there's another idea for you, New Zealand. Um, and we've got we've got Willie from Mount Monganui on the line. Willie, are you there, mate? Yep, I am. Hey, um, tell us about tell us about what you did yesterday. You were in Cutty Cutty. <laughs> yeah, I'm a creature of habit. So I go to I go to Waihi Beach every Wednesday, and on the way from Cutty Cutty, I always stop off and get a uh, chicken kebab and a uh, chicken curry roll and I happen to have an already pretty substantial sandwich in, in the van with me so I added two chicken kebabs to a, uh, a burger sandwich that had uh, chorizo salami, avocado <laughs> beetroot hummus and uh, mazdam cheese on it already so I added the chicken kebabs to it and yeah probably best sandwich I've ever had in my life I was going to say how did it taste though? Oh just phenomenal just yeah, uh, multitude of flavours, but uh, everything was very harmonious. Re- really? Because what? Because yeah. the, the bab with the beetroot hummus and the chorizo. Yeah, is, is that harmonious though? Yeah. It do we have different ideas yeah. of harmony, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> we may do, but uh, yeah, I, I can surprise myself. But it sounds like messy eating, though. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is fabulous. Willie, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm always nice to hear a creature of habit who's prepared to try something by sticking his kebabs in a sandwich. That's brilliant. <laughs> We've had people talking about a Christmas sandwich from the UK, turkey, ham, stuffing and cranberry sauce. Ooh, yum. Um, mm. And honey, onion and marmite is another one. Ooh. So many things to go. Up next is Checkpoint with Lisa Rowan, Alan Blackman and Heather Roy. Thank you so much for your time today. Kia ora, New Zealand.